0: Hello and welcome to Around the World with POLIS, a brand new podcast from the School of Politics and International Studies, lovingly called POLIS from the University of Leeds. This podcast is all about discussing current affairs and research with our talented and fun academics at Polis. In this day and age, when everybody is busy and glued to their phones, we thought, why not bring the research expertise of our academics in a fun and accessible package to inform you of what's happening around the world. And this podcast is a result of that. My name is Tal.
1: And I am Akash. And we will be our presenters for the podcast. And let's dive in uh, into our first episode. We have with us Head of School of Politics and International Studies, Professor Jason Ralph. He is currently researching the role of the UK in the UN, United Nations Security Council as a permanent member after Brexit. His research specialization revolves around British foreign policy and global governance. Hello, Jason. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you think about the podcast around the world with polis?
2: Well, hello. Um, First of all, thank you for taking the initiative and doing this exciting project. Um, The way I see it, it is a collaborative project between staff and students. I've always seen students as um, colleagues and co-producers of knowledge, and this, I think, is an example of that where, um, uh, through the podcast, you can help staff bring attention to their research and engage students in the um, current debates that surround those research projects.
0: Uh, why do you think this podcast is a good idea in terms of having it start off with Polis and hopefully have it expanded?
2: Well, um, I mean, Polis is at the center of many of the global challenges that the university is tackling. So the university research themes and clusters and expertise look at, for instance, health, global health, global water, um, global development, global conflict. These are the global challenges that um, the university is at the heart of um, addressing. And what we found recently is that... Many of the areas of the university that are addressing these, for instance, engineering, School of Earth and Environment, are looking to polis and to the social sciences more generally, so sociologists, law, educationalists, um, to examine and help them understand the social and political aspects of those challenges. So, for instance, Getting water to uh, a developing part of the world to address um, the problems um, uh, in those parts of the world is not just a technical issue of getting pipelines and water. Health is not just a matter of getting vaccines. It's about getting vaccines and these technical solutions um, in areas where there's conflict and political problems. So our research in POLIS... And where the podcast, I guess, can help uh, disseminate that research um, is crucial to tackling the global challenges um, that we face as a world society.
1: All right. Thank you, Jason. Uh, Can can you tell us a little bit about your research and your research specialization?
2: Well, my research, I guess, has gone through various phases. I started off, you are master's students, right? My master's was in strategic studies. Um, And I became interested in, that That was during the Cold War, I'm that old, (laughs) um, uh, when we used to count missiles uh, between the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, And I did my PhD on the end of the Cold War and wrote a book on American foreign policy. And then I uh, carved out a research agenda, I guess, around America's American exceptionalism and America's relationship to international norms. So I wrote a book on the International Criminal Court and why America opposed it. Um, we then had 9-11, unfortunately, um, and American exceptionalism went into overdrive and started challenging not just new international norms like the International Criminal Court, but long-standing norms like the Geneva Conventions, and, um, and uh, so I wrote a book on America's War on Terror um, that looked at how the Obama administration um, tried to um, roll back some of the exemptionism of the Bush administration. Um, then um, I went back to uh, questions of international humanitarian norms, and we... Um, had a number of colleagues join us who had an interest in the responsibility to protect so collaboratively we started working on the responsibility to protect Uh, i had a period at the asia pacific center for the responsibility to protect where i wrote an article on um, pragmatic constructivism and the responsibility to protect i can explain that (laughs) if you want Um, Uh, And then I guess the next phase of research um, was the grant that you referred to, which is a British Academy grant, to look at um, the influence that Brexit has on the UK's standing at the United Nations. So those are various phases of research that um, I've looked, that I, I kind of structured the 20 years of post PhD with.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's very interesting. And we have a lot of, as you said, a lot of academics who are uh, really talented and mm-hmm. uh, who know what they're doing at Polis, and we we are looking forward to having a really good, uh, informative season. Of uh, just talking to academics about current events and the research. Uh, Do you have any final things to say to uh, the audience of a podcast?
2: Well, um, I think I'd echo what you've just said, that um, uh, we are a diverse and broad School of International Politics, Um, sorry, School of Politics and International Studies. Um, We cover three main areas of politics, uh, international relations and global development and within those disciplines there's a lot of interdisciplinary work going on. Um, uh, It is of course an exciting time across those areas in British politics given that I think we are experiencing a um, uh, slow revolution that's realigning British politics um, you saw the European elections very recently and the two main parties uh, coming way down the list of, um, uh, or, or way down the, the lead table of votes, if I can put it that way. Uh, new parties coming to the fore like Brexit Party, uh, the Green Party doing well, Liberal Democrats. So there's a slow revolution going on That that, that a lot of our, staff and particularly those in the center of democratic engagement and the politics side of the school engage with. And then on the international and global side there's there's um, the global challenges that I talk about uh, talk, spoke about earlier and staff are addressing those um, again through an interdisciplinary perspective. So we're talking to all the major challenges so it should be an exciting podcast series for you. Uh, thank you
1: Thank you Jason. In this very first episode of the podcast, we will be talking about social media, the internet and the role it plays in democratic engagement, especially in China and the US. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Jillian Bolzova, lecturer in politics and media. Her research revolves around the effects of commercialization, globalization, computational propaganda and new media and communication technologies on politics and civil society with an emphasis on the USA and China. She teaches modern Chinese politics, comparative politics and technology, and media at Polis.
0: Hello, Jillian, and welcome to Around the World with Polis. Can you just uh, briefly tell us about your current research at the University of Leeds
3: and a bit about your professional background? Sure. So I actually started as a journalist. I started as a photojournalist and then went into studying media um, afterwards. I recently finished, a couple of years ago, I finished my, my PhD. Um, I was at the University of Oxford before, at the Oxford Internet Institute, which is this weird kind of interdisciplinary uh, centre where we have a lot of different people studying um, the effects of the internet on society, and it was there that I started to look more specifically at the internet and politics. I had previously lived in China for a couple of years and did a master's there, in journalism, and so when I was thinking of applying to Oxford, I was thinking, Well, what is my unique selling point? Uh, it's that I know about China and speak Chinese, so I started to um, to research, particularly the internet and politics in China there. And then I joined the University of Leeds last September. Um, it's been great here, I really love it. Um, I'm working on a couple of projects now. Um, one project that I'm working on over the summer, I am working on turning my PhD into a book. And updating that to take into account some of the research that I've been doing since my PhD, looking at computational propaganda, looking at Trump and Xi Jinping about how they have changed um, political discourse, their ways of communicating, and how that's uh, that's changed the political process. Um, I'm also I've also started a new project where I'm looking at online political discourse in the Indian general election, which is a really new thing. But I think India. Um, would be a really, really interesting case to compare to the U.S. and China that I've previously been looking at. Um, and so I'm really, really interested to learn learn more about that, but that's ongoing. Wow,
0: that's very interesting. So you just briefly mentioned um, democratic elections and how the U.S., China, Trump, and Xi Jinping have been using the discourse of, of uh, social media, especially we often hear um, Trump Coining the word fake news, <laughs> um, so we have also seen this um, in 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 European elections as well in recent times, right? So what impact does the media have on the political sphere or the political discourse mm-hmm. exactly?
3: So information is really really important in a lot of our understandings of the way politics works. Um, If you think about a lot of um, ways in which we understand politics, citizens when they are interacting as political entities need to have access to information in order to act um, in a correct way. So we have these ideas about how information and the media brings together communities. There was some work by a guy called Benedict Anderson where he had this idea of imagined communities. And he was looking at the formation of modern nation states. And his theory was something like, until we had the mass media, until we had shared media consumption, and you could sort of assume that, you know, people in Scotland and people in Cornwall were all like watching, you know, BBC News or like had access to similar kinds of information, that unless you share this shared set of language and shared set of information consumption, people don't come together as a community that can be much, much larger than the amount of people that you could physically know. So in this way, media and shared information consumption is really important in having nation states and in having civic bodies. Um, A little bit more in in the political theory side, we have theories like the public sphere, which is a theory which is popular enough that people outside academia have heard of it, and these other ideas about... Things like monitorial citizenship. So monitorial citizenship is an idea where um, and it's an idea that tries to account for the fact that most of the time we don't do anything political. The idea of monitorial citizenship, which is also called a similar thing to latent citizenship, is that really we don't do political things most of the time. But we kind of monitor, we stay up to date with what's going on in the world. And if something happens, that kind of triggers us to think like, oh, no, for instance, like, no, I really support Brexit or I'm really against Brexit. This is the time for me to come out and act politically. I need to, you know, not just go to my yoga class and watch Netflix. I need to go out and be a political entity. So this is all to say that most of the way that we understand how politics works requires us to have access to information that is relatively impartial. It doesn't have to be perfectly impartial, but it has to be in some ways created based on um, like well-intentioned, (laughs) that they're just not trying to misinform you. And that if we are not consuming, if, if we don't have a shared sense of information consumption, then that really breaks down how politics works. And then the original question was, how does the media, what role does the media play in that? And I've turned it around to talk about information Um, But the media for a very long time was seen as the main purveyor of political information. And this, this idea of a fourth estate, that they would provide a check and balance by providing information... Um, that's filtered through a sense of professional standards, this well-intentioned, non-biased, we need to tell people this information. Like, what we probably all like to see on the front of the papers is a bunch of photos of kittens. Everyone likes to look at photos of kittens and photos of puppies. but we need to know about what's going on in Syria. And it's these sort of things that have broken down, have, have significantly broken down in the current social media environment.
0: Um, So in the past we have seen the rise of right-wing politics and parties all over the world. Um, How have right-wing parties used social media platforms as propaganda tools to sway voters?
3: I think that this is quite an interesting thing in the sense that for quite a long time it was left-wing entities that were utilizing the internet more to their advantage. Like the early people say in the U.S. context, it was first Howard Dean who was seen as, um, a, you know, a forerunner in, in using the Internet. And then Barack Obama, like we sort of forget this because we're so focused on, on on Trump's use of the Internet. But um, Obama, you know, really sort of pushed the boat forward in terms of using media to organize grassroots. Um, he appeared like, you know, Reddit ask, you know, uh, kind of questions. And so for, and, and and it's not just in the US, there was Podemos in, in Spain, which is, um, you know, left-wing party that were very innovative in their use of media for, for organisation um, and also quite technologically aware. They used um, sort of end-to-end encrypted, they used Telegram for communications. And so for quite a while, it was actually the left-wing that was sort of, in a way, benefiting more from politics, also from a citizen perspective, things like the Occupy movement, and so I kind of this, this, this way that it seems currently to be helping right wing parties. I think it's important to remember that this might not be like necessarily these kinds of media help right wing parties, because for a long time it was sort of the left wing um, entities that were benefiting from it. I think in this rise of right wing populism also, it is important to remember that media is not the only thing. Media is a tool that's being used. But even if we took away entirely the Internet, and just sort of looked at the way the, the world economy is doing right now and the economy and unemployment um, and uh, no. d- the economic disparities yeah. um, in society, you would probably expect a rise of um, more extreme voices, of, of, of populist voices. There are people in the department who don't like the use of the word populism, but this this is, this is speaks very much to, to what people are, are seeing and thinking when they look at the political system now. So I don't think that the, the rise of the right wing is necessarily um, to do with social media or, and the question is still out whether like, it does benefit right wing um, politics more than left wing politics. I don't personally think that that is the case. However, I do think that social media benefits a particular type of politics because of the length of information um because of the intense competition for attention online because of the commercialized kind of entertainmentized aspect i think it benefits more emotional politics less rational discussion and it's it's sort of i think it's sort of a toss up whether that's being used by the left wing or the right wing um but i think it does benefit in particular this this kind of less uh, rational and less um, institutionalized form of politics
0: right, um, so there has been much contention about Russian inter- interference in various democratic processes around the world especially Russian disinformation campaigns on social media platforms. There has also been um, further rhetoric of China using similar methods to sway elections, election campaigns for certain favored parties around the world Do you think democracy is becoming opaque or is there a way to eliminate this type of disinformation
3: campaign? Um, I think the first thing in reference to China, um, I haven't seen a great deal of evidence that China is doing similar things to the kinds of things that Russia has been doing. shown to be doing, has been accused of doing, that we have like good evidence to believe that these, these things happened. And I think that there's a few reasons for this. I'm gonna put, I'm not talking here about um, Hong Kong and Taiwan, those are very different cases and the kinds of evidence for uh, mainland Chinese um, influence on politics in Hong Kong and Taiwan is, is very different, but outside that, um, that sort of sp- sphere, isn't very much evidence of, of China, you know, doing the kinds of things that we've seen Russia doing. Um, and I think that there's a few reasons for this. And I think it's partly that China doesn't sort of need to engage, I think, in these sort of like cheap and dirty strategies like you know misinformation and there have been um some hacking cases associated with china but i think that there's much less evidence that that is associated is, is, is associated with you know the central the central politics um china has so much i think genuine economic political and cultural influence in the world stage that they don't sort of need tons of troll farms and and bots so they don't need centrally directed um attempts to manipulate democratic elections Um, this isn't to say that interests associated with chinese politics are not um are not you know trying to influence things but we've seen that a lot of the things that sort of look like chinese attempts to to um Influence, you know, political discourse on social media, for instance, are actually just sort of Chinese citizens, and there's no sort of central direction. It's just that they, you know, they strongly believe that Taiwan should be part of the Chinese mainland. And there's um, there's a very interesting case. I said I wasn't going to talk about Taiwan, but there's a very interesting case where there was an expedition from a forum in um, China where they all sort of jumped over the Great Firewall and went and posted lots of stuff on the Facebook page of the lady who was running for re-election in Taiwan. And that could look like to an outside insider that, that could be very centrally directed, like that's, in, you know, vastly in the mainland Chinese interest. But it was actually just a group of citizens who, you know, believed strongly enough. Um, so I don't think there's very much evidence that that China's doing in, in, in the same sort of way. We have seen attempts in some places to influence media discourse. There's been, I think, at least one, one case in Canada and maybe a couple of cases in Australia. Um, the, the Chinese, there's a huge Chinese diaspora in Australia, and so a lot of the um, tip of the, the, the iceberg might sort of happen there. We've seen uh, attempts sort of to influence uh, media discourse there, but I don't, I have never seen compelling evidence that it's, it comes from like a central level in, in the same way as we've seen for Russia. So that's the Chinese aspect. Um, second aspect of the question was, is democracy becoming opaque? Um, and uh, I am... This is this is this is in some ways I think a, a loaded a loaded question. Like I can see where we're coming from here. I only say loaded because you say loaded. <laughs> it's a good question, um, but uh, I think democracy has in many ways always been relatively opaque. Like a lot of times when we look back to what we you know is it, thought of as the like golden ages of democracy, it was often male suffrage, um, people with property. Um, Lots of people excluded, um, a lot of like, um, we talk about like uh, resource models of political participation, and that was just so much worse back then, right? Like if you couldn't travel, you know, if you couldn't take time out of your schedule to travel to where the politics was happening in, you know, the the capital or the the state capital, like, you know, before we had such easy transport links, I think the way that politics was working um, and, and there was less, you know, less sort of like education I think politics has maybe always been quite opaque. We had maybe had like a, a hump where things got better in the, you know, in the like maybe late 1880s, early 1900s. But like, even still, like, um, I, I think that this the way that power works and politics is about power, in my opinion. The way the power works, it's always in the interest of the people who have the power to make that system as opaque as possible. I think politics has always been quite opaque. I think one of the things that has changed is the spaces in, not like the way that politics is working, um, not the way that how opaque politics is, but how opaque the things that influence us as individual people uh, are. I think we have so many more contacts with with perhaps the political system than we did, you know, 150 years ago. Um, and, you know, why uh, the universal credit is changing or why the bedroom tax is happening and who you can talk to or um, why, you know, why we're seeing what how the algorithms that are working on social media, you know, why we're seeing what we're seeing, why this is being recommended. I think our sense of control over our own lives has maybe decreased and this is this is maybe this sense of opaqueness. Um, and it's partially sort of globalization it's partially the fact that we actually are now more connected that we feel sort of less less in control i think that's that's what's changed i do think there is a real need for more transparency in in understanding about the things that affect us and the system that we are in so can we ever stamp out disinformation I don't think that we can get rid of disinformation. Um, this has always been the case. I'm sure you, like, most people have seen these amazing, like, adverts for um, medicines where it's like, it will cure, like, impotence and depression. And if your husband is cheating and also flatulence and, you know, <laughs> ward off bad spirits and, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, there's There's been sort of disinformation and propaganda. And attempts, and even more widely, like attempts to use information to control people. Um, but the, 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 this has always been the case, and I don't think we can stamp that out. Um, I don't think that kind of proactive, like reactive, sorry, reactive. Um, responses to disinformation is going to solve the problem you know I, I don't think that we can just get facebook to agree that they're going to delete cases of misinformation it just this morning there was this kind of um you know fake video of, of mark zuckerberg talking that was posted on instagram and you know, they were asked are you going to delete this and they said you know it's just going to go according to our normal policies if the fact checkers flag it as false then we will you know put a note on it and enough people flag it as false then we'll remove it i don't think this kind of like removing information is ever going to work because you know there's, there's always this gray area like some, some things are provably false but you can never have this know this this hard and fast rule where this is false it gets removed this isn't like there are many many things in society that some people believe are true and some people believe are false and some people believe more evidence needs to come in and this kind of thing and people will always be trying to use information for power and information for control
0: So, uh, most of your work has been on Chinese internet and social media networks. Uh, Why are you interested in studying Chinese internet and comparing it to social media and the internet in other parts of the world? Why does China's highly censored and limited internet ecosystem matter so much?
3: I think, firstly, it matters just because China, I mean, you know, is just such a large country. Um, I think... It is the world's largest. It is the world's largest population of internet users. Um, it is the world's most populous country, um, and even though we, you know, we might think, oh, you know, that's they they live the, in the a highly censored, highly controlled internet. It's actually, if you kind of divide it up nationally, like the most commonly experienced internet by internet users, um, and so it's it's important to understand it, I, I think, for this, and important to sort of check our own. Check our own context, you know. Past it, um, I think China is also very important to study in the sense that it is seen as a model for internet control more widely. Like it's, it's sort of the world leader in terms of controlling online information and using technology more widely. Um, you know, they've adopted a lot of quite innovative. Uh, technologies in China, things like facial recognition being used in policing has been going on there for a good, like six to eight years. Um, and so some of these things that they are doing, uh, you, know, you can actively see other countries and other um, entities who are trying to control the internet looking towards China. Um, they also export some of that technology. Um, Russia has used some of the technologies, um, the, the kinds of um, internet censorship technologies that have been used in China. I think it's also a very useful, um, and, and also the, uh, the, this debate that's going on in the UK right now over whether Huawei. Should be providing technology for the 4G system in the UK. Like Chinese companies, um, hardware and software is, is huge. I mean it's it's a huge market. So it's it's a big exporter. Um and also conversely, the Chinese consumer market is so huge that many of our like you know dearly felt uh, technology companies. Would love to break the Chinese market. They would love to get in. It was um last year, I think Google announced that maybe it was you know developing a new, um, uh, it was called Google Dragonfly or something, new search engine that would comply with Chinese um, censorship regulations that would be rolled out in China. Um, Yahoo has worked with um you know has has provided information. You a lot every technology company that goes into China. Is abiding by you know Chinese regulations and once that's been added partly because the market is so attractive but once you know a technology company has developed those sources of control for the Chinese market then it becomes much easier to roll out elsewhere and China's not the only country with internet control I think a really good example is um how tightly um Nazi um information is controlled in both germany and and france and there have been some some interesting cases you know about you know information about um you know neo-nazis and this is really tightly controlled in these countries and so once um once this has been developed for the chinese market it can then be applied you know much more easily bit part to control different kinds of information according to the different situations there's a lot of um there'd be a lot of desire right now in Europe to control, um, uh, more extreme information related to Islam, um, and, you know, information coming out of, associated with, with, with ISIS and this kind of stuff, and so once that's been developed, it, it can, it can be rolled out more widely, and so I think that China is, is in some ways, like, a, a test case, like, in a way to think about what's going on there, or could happen here, and is that what we want, and I think that that's, one of the reasons that I think it's so useful to compare because when people hear often about what's going on um, in China they think oh you know this is this is terrible um I would never kind of allow this I would never want it I can't believe that it's happening here but then when we look at our own contexts similar stuff is actually happening and I think that that's one of like the the most scary things about my work in comparing the u.s and china that actually when you compare the u.s to china the u.s doesn't look very good (laughs) um and our countries can 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 look bad in certain areas and i think that this is one of the real um important other reasons to to look at china because it can teach us something about ourselves as well
1: Right. So we just spoke a little bit about uh, Google Dragonfly and, uh, uh, and Yahoo and other companies complying with uh, Chinese regulations. But why do you think China has spent so much time, money and energy in blocking and replacing these foreign social media companies? So Weibo and Baidu are much more popular and, and you can't really access Google or other uh, social media platforms. Why do you think China has spent so much? money
3: doing this Mm. i think that one i mean i mean a flippant reason is because they can you know (laughs) because that they the state has that much power they have so much they have such a large population it wouldn't be reasonable for a very very small country for instance to, to just say we are not going to use any of these social media platforms we're just going to develop our own domestically but because china is so uh Powerful and because the state has an extraordinary amount of control there, um, they can Um, more um, in a more. I think a lot of countries would do it if they could. To be honest, you know, you see you see Europe would would because now you're looking at how um, uh, how data is used by these big companies that are based in the U S if, if Europe could conjure up some like the social media platforms that would be as good as Facebook, but comply with EU data regulations, they like absolutely would right now. Right. Um, but on a more, on a more academic level, I guess, um, the way that information has been viewed previously in, in Chinese politics post, um, the communist revolution in, in 1949, um, this the way that the reason that they've spent this so much um, time and effort controlling um the information of the internet is because that is a natural progression from the way things were before. Um, the mass media was very tightly controlled there. Um, newspapers, TV. And then there was some commercialization of newspapers that happened around the early 1990s, along with a lot of commercialization in China. But even still, um, you have very different standards and very different understandings of the way that information works there. And so when the Internet came along, the Internet had to uh, continue to abide by the way information is understood there. The way, in general, when you talk about a um, Marxist interpretation of the mass media, um, is thinks that maintaining maintaining harmony, maintaining the uh, coherence of the current system, of the current political system, of the current social system, is more important than, say, truthfulness of information and impartiality. And I know that this can sound very much like uh you know a horrible horrible thing like how could you put like the stability of the system which also means the continuation of the chinese communist party but means wider things you know how could you put that above um you know free information and truth but there are a lot of cases where you know we we have done we've done similar things this is a point on a on spectrum um so they have spent so much time and energy um controlling these social media platforms Um, Because it it fits and is a continuation of the way that information is understood um, in the country and also because they can. Um, I think it's also important that to to think about the fact that this is not entirely a political decision. Um, There are uh, linguistic reasons why um, basically, you know, people who speak Chinese stay within Chinese domestic produced countries. Um, uh, companies um, because the the language and the way that's presented is so different Um, and also just economic reasons the fact that they banned these companies and develop uh, and develop domestic alternatives is not just for politics it's also because they wanted to have those major technology companies and it's now the case that Um, some Chinese technology companies are among the most powerful in the world. Like the top five are still um, American-based companies I think, Mm -hmm. but in the top 20 it's about an even split between China and the US. And so economically this was very good for them as opposed to relying on um, Western developed companies.
1: Right, so we spoke a little bit about uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan and uh, how um, China like would like to control uh, political discourse in those countries. And considering recent events in Hong Kong, especially, Democracy! Uh, Democracy! Uh, the protests uh, over criminal extradition that, that have been happening for the past few days. Uh, and and in 2014, the umbrella movement was pretty huge. And social media was used to a great extent to bring people together to protest on the streets. And uh, but there was some amount of internet censorship in, like, uh, not... To not enable protesters to protest on the streets. But by numbers, this protest happening over the past couple of days is far larger and some publications are estimating almost a million people on the streets. Such protests would be hard to organize without a free internet. Uh, but what, do you, what do you think about the role of social media in such protests, especially in Hong Kong?
3: I don't know a huge amount about the the current protests that are are going on in terms of it's still too early to have collected um, data. I've read a few things about this use in the in the Occupy and Umbrella protests. Um, I think, yes, it would be hard to organize this kind of protest without social media. Um, We should remember that we did manage to organize really big protests without social media. And um, there there are certainly um, cases, uh, particularly in in, in China, um, around SARS and previously, um, before there was widespread Internet use, um, protests were organized using mobile phones, using text messages. Um, Hong Kong is quite a small place it wouldn't be super super hard to you know put up a ton of posters and get a bunch of people on the street. Um, I think one of the things that social media does here is is is, is less about organization and more about um, <sighs> providing a sense of just how many people are going to be there because if you see a poster in your apartment block maybe you see posters everywhere but I think you can be sort of more more afraid to go. You don't know how many people are going to go, but there is this sense of social pressure. Where particularly on on um, social media things snowball. We saw this with the women's march um, around Trump's inauguration, where this thing just snowballed into the biggest like single day protest in U.S. history. Partly because people are sharing it on social media. Once like four of your friends are going, you know you you feel like a social pressure to go, so I think you know partly it, it it's not that these things would be impossible to organize, but that these things can blow up much much faster um and I think if if there had been huge internet censorship there, I think I still would have uh, i if we took the internet away in Hong Kong for the past month, I think we still would have seen protests there, but they probably would have been much, much smaller um they probably would have been a much much more um less diverse group of individuals it would probably be you know students and um academics and people who are um more constantly involved in politics rather than right now there's kids there's old people Um, and i think also the protests would have been much more cracked down upon partly because it's smaller but partly because of social media you can see what's happening and and there is some sense of accountability there
1: all right, so let's move on to uh, your research and the stuff that you studied. And in your latest article titled "Slacktivist USA and authoritarian in China," you uh, compared online political speech by ordinary users in, in US and uh, and and China and, and uh, especially Weibo and Twitter. Uh, so Weibo is uh, a Chinese microblogging site for the listeners who aren't very familiar. Uh, you you found in this study that uh, political speech by ordinary users are far more frequent. On both flat platforms than expected, nine point four percent on Weibo and six point eight percent on Twitter. Does this mean that Chinese Weibo users are more uh, open to expressing political opinion, uh, 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 despite the outside perception of uh, China China's censorship on political mm-hmm. speech?
3: Yeah, I think. I think there is this outside perception that nothing political is, 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 is happening on the internet in China or at least the, this was the perception sort of outside academia maybe like five years ago or, or this kind of thing I think that it's it's diversified a bit now um I want to say that out of this political speech I found on the internet in China none of it was contrary to what like none of it was stuff that was going to get censored You know, there's a ton of political speech that happens that is entirely within the bounds of stuff that the Communist Party allows. You know, maybe some of it, they're not like super happy with it, but they're not going to stamp out all of it. So I saw stuff like, um, you know, I've joined this this initiative to um, raise money to help build a school for migrant children. Um, and I want to you know come come to my like bake sale so they're not doing bake sales, but you know, help me raise money for this or like come out on the Saturday and help me build it um a lot of like civic stuff, you know we're we're organizing um a, a movement to spay all the stray cats like can you help us like identify where the stray cats are living? There were people posting um you know basically calls for like government attention there was um during the period that I looked at was about a month long. There was a, a small earthquake, um, not the kind of stuff that makes, like national news. I'm not talking about the Sichuan earthquake that was very big. It was also in Sichuan because that's like a jubil- <laughs> geologically active area, but like a smallish earthquake. Um A number of people in my dataset that were posting from the earthquake, like, it's been four days, we don't have any power, no one is coming, Um, it seems like there's corruption, like, all of the government people have got, like, you know, temporary places to stay, all of us poor people, we're, like, basically in tents, there's, like, a pregnant lady, Um, you know, she's super pregnant, we don't have running water, like... And trying to raise awareness, you know, tagging media organizations. Like the Chinese Communist Party would prefer if people weren't like using the internet. But they know if they stamp that out, firstly, people will get really upset. You know, if when you like people, people get annoyed if their posts get censored. But if you like completely remove all those kinds of posts, people get like very upset. And then, but secondly, the Communist Party is not all powerful and all seeing. They they very actively use Social media discourse to um to help govern. They can't govern a population that completely hates them. And so, if for instance, there have been a lot of like low-level cases in which, I say, like lo- like local cases where people have posted stuff about social media, even to be quite critical of what the government is doing, particularly on a local level. You can't be critical of Xi Jinping, but you can be very critical of like the local water authority who's not doing anything about the pollution. And the central government will often, or like the the state government and the province government will come in and do something about it because A, they want people to be happy. B, they don't want that to spread. If you and your little village are trying to get something done about pollution, fine. If you were talking to the next village over and the next village over and the next village over and saying, no one's doing anything about pollution, we need to do something big that's not okay so uh, there is this impression there's sometimes this impression that nothing political is happening in china and this is not this is just not true i found a lot more than i expected but none of it is challenging the ultimate authority of the communist party but there is a lot of political stuff going on and i think that's really interesting and i think one of the things that i think we should learn from in this case is people there are using the internet much more for the kind of civic functions that we want the internet to do. To help stray animals, to help impoverished old people, to like socially organize And that's partly because there are such strong messages from the Chinese state about how to be a good citizen, that you should help old people, that you should like help migrant children. Um, And I think the lack of I think we can, in some ways, learn from how the Chinese state is very actively communicating that you should be a good citizen, and how you should be a good citizen, because it's obvious that people are responding to that and taking initiative to do things.
1: So it's it's not so much about the structure of, say, uh, Weibo that that makes political engagement more conducive, but it's more about how uh, the Chinese government says you're a good citizen if you do this, if you do that, you like that.
3: Yeah, I think more of it to do is with with the. Um, Messages from the Chinese government about how to be a good citizen. There is possibly something in the more like collective orientation of of Chinese culture in in the first place. Um, Still, even though a lot of people are urbanized, still a much more close, closer family and local structure than in, say, the US, where people have been moving around for generations. There is some ways in which Weibo is a little bit more conducive to um, political discussion than Twitter. Weibo was essentially started as a clone of Twitter. When it first started, it basically looked exactly like Twitter. It has since grown to be a bit more than Twitter. You can um, add more photos, you can add more videos, and there are slightly better functionalities for discussion. Um, So there's some ways in which structurally it's better, but I think a lot more has to do with the context than has to do with the platform.
1: OK, um, so you've also written an article, uh, a, a similar article, comparing comments on uh, news stories on Weibo and uh, Facebook using content, content analysis methods. And in that article, you argue that the use of uh, Jürgen Habermas public sphere theory is not justified well enough in uh, relevant studies. Uh, can you tell us what uh, Habermas uh, public sphere theory really is? and uh, why is it not ideal to use Habermas' public sphere theory in uh, Chinese public sphere theories?
3: So Habermas's public sphere is one of the most, maybe the most influential sort of political concept. I think of the of the past. Um, so basically, the idea of the public sphere is um, a space, not like a space that exists, but a kind of space in which you sort of go into in which people act as citizens so Habermas um based his studies on um looking at things like coffee houses in the um, 17 and, and 1800s um sort of salons like um you know discussion societies where you know rich white men rich privileged white men will, will come together and you know discuss the books they've been reading and share information and um He came up from looking at these things, which he saw in some ways as an ideal form of uh, political engagement. He came up with this idea of the public sphere, which is where people will come together to engage in discussion about political issues. And from that discussion about political issues. That they have with with other people in this kind of imaginary space, which could just be your front room when you sit down with your friends. You know, you're now sort of being in the public sphere because you're engaging in discussion about political issues. You then form opinions, you gain new information, and then that feeds back into your like everyday actions as a citizen. Habermas had a specific set of ideas about how these interactions, these discussions, should take place in the public sphere. And that is part of what has been sort of problematic is his idea was that when you engage in discussion about these political issues in this like imaginary public sphere space, um, you should be uh, respectful in, in listening. You should everyone should be equal in their discussions Um, You know, no one should be shouted over, you should, you know, tell people that they're wrong, like no one should feel scared to speak, you should share all of the information, Um, you shouldn't be kind of like sharing just the information that supports your point. So this is this, this other aspect of the public sphere is how these discussions should take place, should be equal, it should be rational, you should be justifying your perspectives with with facts, rather than just kind of stating opinions, Um, it should be respectful. It should be free of commercial interests. It should be, um, which wasn't to say, like if some of this was occurring in coffee houses, but you shouldn't be influenced by your outside lives. You shouldn't be arguing for uh, the deregulation of coal power plants because you're on a coal power plant. (laughs) Um, So that's this idea of the public sphere. (laughs) And this idea of the public sphere seems to be extremely like it, it speaks to people on an emotional level and there's been so much academic critique of this like as soon as it I think he originally wrote the book I'm gonna get this wrong he originally wrote it in German and it wasn't until several years like 12 you know 14 years later or whatever that it was um translated but sort of as soon as it came translated to english like it it became quite popular and then soon after it's so many academics arguing that this is not uh, a theory that 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 works very well um arguments about whether looking at these coffee houses is a good model you know almost women were never you know part of it Marginalized populations were never part of it, like immigrants, you know, poor people. It was really, you know, elite as as politics often is. So there's arguments about whether that is an appropriate model. And a lot of arguments about whether this kind of discussion is actually possible. Like, can we leave behind our private interests and not argue for something that is just in our own interests? Like, can we really provide unbiased information? Can we really listen respectfully? Is it possible to have a discussion in which power hierarchies are, are raised and, and, and me as you know a professor you know the, the, the like undergrad student that I'm talking to doesn't feel like disempowered in, and that their their um opinions on the topic are slightly less valid than mine because they're an undergrad and I teach them or something like in public sphere discussion we would need to be equal so a lot of people saying like I'm not sure this is ever actually like possible right um and also people saying okay imagine it's possible, like, does it ever happen? And there's sort of, like, no real, you know, when we look at, like, spaces in which people engage in discussion, we don't see this happening. Um, But it, this does speak to people. So I don't think that the public sphere is very useful. It's definitely, I don't think it's very useful to be using in China. I don't think it's very useful to be using anywhere else, <laughs> really. Um, And I think our, like, love of this public sphere theory has sort of obscured our looking into other kinds of theories i think so many people still are trying to like save the public sphere rather than look at like different alternatives and for instance i think there's been some work really um interesting work by a lady called Chantal murph at the university of westminster who has a theory called agonistic pluralism which is much more about saying like conflict will always happen power differentials will always be the case. People are never going to not be arguing for the thing that sort of like benefits them, right? We can't expect people to act like that. We have to have a system that like accounts for that. And I think how much people love the public sphere has sort of blinded us to like developing and thinking about other theories. But there is some sort of amazing emotional salience to this. And this seems to be like how people want politics to work. We want to believe that we are able to be equal and able to engage in rational discussion and able to provide information that isn't just in our private interests. And that's great. But I do think that we need a system that respect the fact that we are not these perfect humans we're always going to have these conflicts we're always going to have these these um power differentials and and accounts for that even though we would love to believe that we could have a public sphere i I don't i don't think we can have a public sphere not in the way that habermas imagined it people sometimes use the public sphere now to mean like much more diffuse things like just where discussion is happening um but in the amazing idea of a public sphere I, i don't I don't think we as humans can ever be like that.
0: (laughs) Well, that concludes our first episode of Around the World with Polis with Dr. Jillian Bolsover. Jillian, thank you for being our guest on Around the World with Polis podcast. Uh, You can now read uh, Jillian's work on her webpage at the University of Leeds website, the link to which will be on the show notes. Thanks for listening to the very first episode of Around the World with Polis and we'll speak next week with another interesting topic and fun academic. Thank you very much for having me.